Louie, or what do you feel? Oh, just a bit run down, Chinch. You know yeah. what it's like. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> Chinch spends all of his time sunning himself in Portugal. He's never he? ill because he never gets Ill. over it by going to Portugal. Mm. Katie's trying to be super healthy at the start of the new year. No chips. And I'm not sure that's really doing me any good whatsoever, <laughs> no. really. So what she cuts out, is it food, you mean? She's make, she, she keeps making vegetarian meals. Yeah. And oh. I think it's, you know, I, I think I'm running short on some of the necessary vitamins and <laughs> proteins that I survive on. Kate had a had a a month of being a vegetarian. Kate was a vegetarian when she was younger, and then she lapsed, and then she had a month. She could still eat ham though, yeah. Two years ago, of she, uh, she her first month moving, in Manchester, yeah, she was a vegetarian. Manchester, yeah. She was a vegetarian, and it freaked us all out. It, it, not as much as it freaked <laughs> me out, but she 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 felt the same after about a month. This isn't this isn't to say that vegetarianism is bad, but I wonder if there is a a point within the 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 transition where your body starts to lack something and then after a while it gets used to the, the absence of port. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just as yeah, an example. That's just the protein. The meat's just... Pro- is it meat you're talking about here? Basic meats. I'm just trying to look for an excuse for just... But what do you miss most about the are, new diet? Are you doing vegetarian or are you actually doing no. veganuary? We're, as, we're which not, is, is we're that not a thing? That's a thing. A what? A veganuary. That sounds like a, which a, is weird. Like a, sounds like a, like a medical procedure. Like a cage you keep vegans in. What's that? Uh, January, but vegan, hence, you know, Movember. Oh, that's ridiculous. It's vegan. If you wanted to make the start of the new year yeah. the most dismal month of the lot, <laughs> even worse. Hang on, let's not be, be hang on vegan a minute, not 31 let's days. With your bigoted anti-anti-meat views. Let's not alienate our vegan audience. That would be, that would be wrong. None of us here are vegans, but, you know, it's, it's a it's choice. It's still fine. You're, you're, it's fine. It's For fine. one month of the Is year. there a month that remains unsullied by any of these stupid initiatives? I would like to know. June. Um, what be... is there in June? No one does anything in June. It's summer and everyone's enjoying That's what you don't your nasal My hair, birthday. June. My, my birthday anniversary. Too, yeah. I just filled it with stuff because it had no purpose. But there's no, there's no yeah, kind of... Even you ignore your birthday. <laughs> that's <so> true. It's <laughs> the... is it because it's in June. Is it a June, July, and August unsullied because their names don't necessarily lend themselves to weird puns, or is it because it's the summer, so no one wants to? Yes, no one needs the, the other reason to live. You cannot yeah. market some, something for a group of people to do together when half of the people are going to be on holiday or, or taking their tops off on high streets, taking yeah. their tops on high streets, or wearing shorts when it's inappropriate to do so. Yes, so I saw them in shorts in Manchester while it was hailing. Oh, really? Last week. Was it the same guy who you've referenced before on the podcast no. who you saw... It was a different short-wearing Completely psychopath. the wrong time of year. Yeah. Hailing. Was he either a postman or a cameraman? Because those no. are the two people who always wear shorts. And he wasn't... The other, the other time when it's sort of vaguely acceptable to wear shorts in the winter is when you have just evidently been to the gym or done some sort no, of... No, but, sh- but if you wear two tops to keep your... Did he didn't have like a T-shirt and shorts on. Did he have a heavy-duty warm top on? That, you can get away with that. Because no. Because lower legs do get hot, even in the winter. My shins get sweaty, so wearing shorts is... But you wear something you, warm. Chinch has packed his shorts because top. he's going to be leaving this very place later in his shorts because he has to go to the gym. Actually, so he's, he's, I'm wearing tracksuit bottoms today. He's, so laying out, he's laying out a series of excuses so no. when, he, when he magnificently no. brings out his calf... Do you know what my favourite thing about Chinch is? In the winter I wear shorts. Well, you've got only, only one My absolute favourite thing about Chinch is that he's not one of these people who goes to the gym and posts footage of it to the internet. No, but he does send us pictures of the gym where he is. He does, without yeah, him, yeah, without him, yeah. Because he's nude. Is people <laughs> is people <laughs> posting images of, of themselves at the gym? That? Is that a thing? Yes, but only in March. Why March? It's just a March thing. That's what March has been given to. People posting selfies. How do you know that? Gym. No, he's lying. I'm lying. Oh, well done. You caught me out. People well, well done on keeping regularly. up with Thanks. the theme of our conversation. The, the, and I, I include friends in this. In fact, mutual friends of the podcast do this. We'll post footage of themselves in the gym. 
to their to their, their social media accounts. And it, is, I, it is a phenomenon that is is hugely popular, like veganism, but that completely baffles me. Unlike veganism. Well, I would suggest that uh, if I was ever going to do that, I would just go into a gym, take a picture, and then leave. That's what, yeah. I don't think that footage of me doing 15 minutes on the bike quite slowly would, would really play well on the internet. I'd pay to see that. Would you? Have you got your clothes on? Yeah. <laughs> Careful how you answer this. That was really sinister. <laughs> yes. You're not entirely sure which answer he is. You took, a, you took a while to answer, though, didn't you? You had to think, wait a minute, do I... Do? Oh, yes, yes, I, I am do wearing clothes, clothes in the gym. Oh, well. But whilst you are baffled by people putting footage of themselves in the gym on social media, you're not baffled by veganism. So is this a, a lifestyle choice that you're soon to embrace? No, because I, I like any number of things that are bad for me. But I understand the initi- the, the, the desire to kind of... Keep your body pure. I can I can appreciate that. I, it wouldn't it doesn't appeal to me, but if people you know do what you want to do, just don't put footage of it on the internet. That's my that's Rory Smith's philosophy for life. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. We are gathered uh, to enjoy a chicken salad, which will unfortunately not be commented upon at this point because we are going to have to do our work first, and then we will enjoy our luncheon. So it is standing by. It is in a beautiful and gifted. I must say, a salad bowl uh, with a gingham uh, oh. tea towel sat above it. So uh, nobody even knows what it looks like. Is there something point. to go with the salad? There is plenty to go with the salad, although the size of the salad would probably dictate that you don't need anything uh, to go with it. There, there, there is a garlic uh, flatbread, Ooh. a homemade potato salad, and some coleslaw. Aren't Amazing. They, aren't there usually some biscuits or crisps to keep oh, us going? For God's sake, joining me, Hugh Ferris, on Set Piece Menu are Stephen Wyeth from BT Sport, Deep and fruity, but with a high acidity. Rory Smith from the New York Times. Intellectually satisfying, with a bit of charcoal and chewy tannins. And Andy Hinchcliffe from Sky Sports. Dry. Like, like super dry. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch, you can do at Set Piece Menu on Twitter is where we are. Set Piece Menu at gmail.com if you'd like to get involved. Bearing in mind that our last episode was all about uh, your contributions, for which we thank you. Um, and I do believe, Steve, Metrics Man, it was the most downloaded uh, episode, mainly because people like hearing about themselves and not from us. Yeah, but, we're, uh, we're basically, we're going to stop coming up with our own ideas and just uh, regurgitate yours over the course of an hour because that seems an awful lot more popular. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's Metrics Man. Yeah. <laughs> is that his? Is that his superhero moniker, is you, it? You need to see him Metrics man. That's all I can say. Oh, we don't. What? You can be his, uh, what? his sidekick infographic. Infograph. <laughs> Sorry. I put my hands on my hips you there. Did Sorry. I did, yes. And yeah, you yeah. look very much like Thanks. A, uh, a Disney hero. <laughs> or like Desperate Dan. Yes. Bearing in mind that we uh, did do that, I would like to just put in a little free song some of the other correspondents that we've had over the weeks and indeed some of the more recent ones as well, including uh, from Ollie Friston, Some Things That Bring Me Joy, he says. Um, I grew up playing left back, which he says then in parentheses, clearly the most important position on the pitch, um, for Wickham Market Nights on Saturday mornings from age seven through when I left home at 18. My parents separated when I was eight and I spent every other weekend with my dad. My father and I have always been close, but these restrictions meant that any time we spent together was extremely valuable to me. To me, those Saturday mornings became as much about the time I could spend with my dad, driving around the back roads of Suffolk to and from games as the game itself. The joy of grassroots football is in the people who make it happen. And that will be a story I would imagine that is reflected and repeated everywhere. I have a question. What was the name of the team you played for? 
Wickham Market Knights. How is the Wickham spelled? Uh, Wickham, W-I-C-K-H-A-M, uh, not W-Y-C-O-M-B-E. If you're playing for a team in Wickham and yet playing in Suffolk, <laughs> then you have gone badly wrong. It's not, an, alter- it's not an alternative Eagles song. <laughs> Otherwise. Wickham Market Nights. It's not one of those things. <laughs> Otherwise, great story. Uh, one of the other things, or some of the other things that uh, bring him joy, when you're sat behind the goal and somebody scores a screamer at the opposite end of the pitch, if you're lucky, you're sat on the perfect angle to be able to follow the path of the ball directly into the score. Oh, nice, yes. nice. That is a cracker. The feeling that I get... Every time still that I climb the steps out of the stand and see the great expanse of green open up before me, I, I, I also subscribe yeah. to that, particularly at a new stadium if that's you go what, there, or your home stadium of your team. Yeah, that's my first memory of going, going to a football match with my dad. You, you make your way up through the turnstiles, up into the terraces, and you see the, the size of the football so where was pitch. That? Where, where was that, Steve? That was at Highbury, actually. Oh, yes. Clock end at Highbury. Brilliant. The green of yeah. a football pitch doesn't exist anywhere else. It's a different type of green. Uh, are we assuming he's an Ipswich fan? I don't know. He may well uh, have been climbing steps to reveal the green of any other football pitch. Because obviously, obviously we can't Portman Road, managed by Mick McCarthy, mm. the pitch is, isn't used very much. Oh! <laughs> did he say he started as a left back? No one starts as a left back. No, they end up as a you're left back. You're condemned to be a left back because you can't play in midfield. I grew up playing left back. Is That's how unbelievable. The problem, the, no, people do start as a left back, they but the problem is, is there's nowhere to go behind that position <laughs> is there back. so that's basically if, if you start there you're not going you to make it as a the footballer the transition is left wing left back carrying the oranges <laughs> the, the Rory position what 12th man out of 10 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we, we would also at this juncture like to bring in uh, Schwinn who has got in touch about our media series that um, we focused on a lot uh, over the last month or so and he just wanted to bring to bear um, a, a phrase or uh, an idea that we didn't necessarily touch on as much as we might have done which is comparative bias so for example he says that journalists have defined benchmarks that they rely on while assessing individual players these benchmarks are different for different players mm-hmm. journos constantly follow the better story we've talked about that and opinionate based on these self-established be- benchmarks fans are intelligent enough to know what to expect when they read articles and then he says i know what i'm getting into if i read a rory smith piece versus a duncan castles piece that's where we'll leave that. But what he would like to particularly focus on is, is this. He says, having established these benchmarks, the criticism that follows due to bad performances is highly inconsistent. So, a Mesut Ozil gets way more criticism than a Theo Walcott, who has been underperforming throughout the last decade. I understand that the Theo story is old and won't generate excitement or clicks, but when you compare that with a Deli Alley or a Christian Eriksen or any other well-respected player, certain players tend to be slated more often and more harshly by the collective media. He then goes on to talk about Alexis Sanchez, about the fact that Alexis Sanchez is... Um, by far one of the most talented players in the league, but since his arrival, nobody has concentrated on how wasteful he is until this season when there is the context of the looming contract. And of course, we may well be talking to you at a point where Alex Sanchez has changed clubs. So is there a comparative bias that perhaps others are judged on different benchmarks and hence we go with a better story with one player, the better story with the second player, which then creates a bit of a paradox. That's a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought of it like that, but he's, or I hadn't thought of it in in those terms, but I think he's probably got a point. And I think the best example is player ratings. So obviously as a commentator uh, and as a pundit, you, you're not cursed with ever having to do player ratings. But as a journalist, it is a sort of horrible rite of passage that we all have to go through. Is, is it the worst part of your job? No, the worst part of my job is the Twitter abuse. But the, the, um, <laughs> for the player ratings. The, for the player ratings. They don't put that in the job description, though, do they, when you sign oh, up? Shouldn't, this is bad. When I was at the Sunday Mirror many years ago, uh, I, was, I went to England versus Estonia 
in some sort of qualifier for something. Sounds like the kind of game you'd have played it in. Does, yes, doesn't it? Yeah. Was it a, was it a goalless like draw? <laughs> I think England, as they used, as they usually do with those, they won three nil unconvincingly, yeah, as they always was, do that against. That was one of mine, probably. <laughs> um, and I remember the, the journalist doing the um, the ratings for the England players, taking ages and ages over it, thinking, oh, you know, did such and such? Is it a seven or is it an eight? Is it a six or is it a five? Really, really thinking about it. And then with Estonia, it was just six, seven, six, seven, six, seven, six, seven, six, seven. Couldn't be bothered. But the thing with ratings is that every journalist has a different system that they, that they use, and we are all nothing means anything. They're all meaningless. So to me, six is average. Six means you've done okay. Seven is good. Eight is really good. Nine is amazing. Ten is out of the world. <laughs> one. I've given one ten. Four. Messi in the five-two Classico. Right. Because um, he he was just he was perfect. Um, is, the, is that a greater achievement for him than perhaps all the goals and the Ballon d'Ors? Getting a 10 from me, yeah. possibly. Well, he knows how, uh, how rare they are to come by, so why the, not? But then to other journalists, like, logically, five should be average. But is it harder for Mesut Ozil to get an to, eight than it is a centre-half to get no, an eight? No, so what I'm getting... It's harder for a centre-half to get an eight, I would have thought. But what okay. I'm getting at is that we... The way you end up doing it is kind of... You give marks based on what you expect of that player. So for Mesut Ozil to get an eight, he probably has to set up a couple of goals yes. and and you know play with that elegance and the, you know that imagination. For Lee Catamol to get an eight, he probably just has to nod him butt. <laughs> yeah. He stayed on the pitch nine. Scott Brown gets a ten for for not being sent off after sixty four minutes. But you, do you know what I mean? Like you're. They are, those are the benchmarks. Of, the yeah, of the benchmark is different. The benchmark is different for every single player, and he's probably right that we expect certain things of certain players, and that then colours our yeah. our coverage if, of if them. If a yeah. player say is a seven but hasn't really done what you might have expected him, do you then give him a six or a five? Yeah, because exactly. But that's it. Starts yeah. to change, doesn't he? Think well, it's not really so fair to do that. They're not. It? They're not being judged by any sort of consistent yes. empirical standard, yes. and I think that is that that principle holds true across the way that players are distrust and he's right to an extent he sort of alludes to it that narratives take hold with certain players like Walcott in a way that they don't with Sanchez but he is right that certain things are expected of certain players and they are then judged against them and there is a, there is a bias in that uh, on a similar theme we actually off the back of what was a brilliant game between Manchester City and Liverpool we, we had a, a stream of consciousness from Barry Meehan on Twitter and, and the crux of his issue off the back of our media series and what he, he felt was biased but I don't think it quite was was the the analysis of the performance of the two goalkeepers in that game and that an awful lot of the, the post-match analysis on Sky was about the mistake that uh, Loris Karius was judged to have made for the Sané goal yeah. and much less was made of the mistake that Edison made for what proved to be the winning goal, the, goal. the Mo Salah goal and he, he wanted to know what we, we thought about that as an aspect of, of bias in football but I felt that was more a sort of like a confirmation bias kind of thing obviously the Liverpool goalkeeping situation is one that's been under scrutiny for, for months really whereas Edison is clearly an upgrade uh, in terms of goalkeeping exactly. for Manchester if that, City. If that had so, been Claudio yeah. Bravo, they probably would have focused more yeah, on Claudio exactly. Bravo because it's the better story because yeah. Claudio Bravo makes another mistake. Yeah, it's, it's confirmation bias, I guess, yeah. is the right yeah, term yeah. for it, isn't it? That you're kind of, it, it fits in with what you already expect. Whether it's bias, it's, it's a diff they're all difficult words. And I had this conversation with someone on Twitter the other day about when an opinion becomes an agenda. Just, I, I, can't yeah. remember, I can't remember what the context was. But he was accusing journalists of having agendas. And I, it really interests me. So I have, the example I used was that I think Sam Allardyce's Everton are awful. <laughs> and I think that 
Sam Allardyce's Everton will quickly lose the support of the Everton fans because they are awful and Everton fans are used to sexy football in the style of Barry Horn and Andy Hinchcliffe. Not off. <laughs> a 90s reference that no one I listened to. I didn't realise I'd set the bar so hard. Which is a 90s reference football-wise but his reference was, was early 90s. No, that's what I mean. Not, it's, not, yeah. it's not half, not, not half. manager. No, no, that's Smashy and Nicey. Smashy and Nicey, smashy and nicey which right. re- references Alan Freeman from the 1960s. My God, look at this. Yeah, I do a lot of work for charity. I <laughs> the, um, so that's my opinion. And I sort of said, well, when does that become my agenda? Mm. And we, we kind of agreed. It was a very nice conversation for Twitter. We, we agreed that it's when you start to, to use every piece of information available, whether it's contradictory or not, to support your, your yes. willingly excluding things that... that disprove your theory and you're only focusing on things that do prove your theory mm. so, they're so you're, all, not, you're not looking at facts you're, you're looking, looking at on coloured facts um, yeah. or you're, facts that have been tainted by your own opinion you're shaping reality to yes. fit your own idea and that, which we, that, have, we spoke about and we, we have um, without naming names we've accused people yeah. of doing that and that is that is an agenda I don't think there's that many journalists who have them but in, in that Edison Carrius example it's not so much bias as in you know, people want Carriers to fail or Edison to succeed or whatever. I think, to an extent, the other thing is not just the, the broader story around them. It's the nature of the mistake. So Carriers' was a technical fault, although the, the ridiculous one with Carriers was the third goal, which he just watched to go in. <laughs> I think I think Leroy Sané, I said this to Chinch before, Leroy Sané kicked that ball really hard. It's really That was a really hard shot. Sometimes people just kick balls really hard. The Edison mistake was a less obvious mistake does it look like it was still a mistake does he, he didn't have to he'd initially done well yes yeah. well, on the commentary he'd, he'd on, what on BBC Radio 5 Live Alan Green said Edison anticipates it well yeah. Yeah. and get you know d- does a good yeah. thing so you're right it was but just he, it was he should have smashed it, in, smashed it into the crowd he didn't yeah. need to kick it back into the back into the centre of the I wonder pitch. if it was a mishit or whether he was actually wrong attempting foot. to pass with his wrong, wrong foot with his wrong so it was still a mistake but it's maybe that's maybe a less obvious mistake Particularly as we have decided that Edison coming off his line being is, a, great is thing. a good thing. <laughs> it's maybe a less obvious mistake than this, this thing about getting beaten at your near post, which apparently for goalkeepers is a cardinal sin, although I'm not quite sure why. Well, thank you to Schwinn. Thank you to Ollie as well. Uh, do continue to get in touch at setpiecemenu on Twitter, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Should we basically now, from now on, just talk about things that make us happy and incidents of media bias? Should that become our... <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think we could that do that make for at least a couple of years. Very yeah. popular. Give yeah. the public what, what they, they want. Exactly, yes. <laughs> well, essentially, setpiecemenu... What, what does that say to you about regional detective series? <laughs> People like them. Let's make more of them. <laughs> we do attempt each week to convene for some food and football chat, which centres around just one subject, although already uh, that's not necessarily the case. And that one subject is always timeless and sometimes timely, and we hope today's uh, will be both. And it is this. Does parking the bus ever work? With Manchester City's dominance in the Premier League so far, we've seen a lot of large motor vehicles with a long body that are equipped with seats or benches for passengers placed between a team full of attacking prowess and a team attempting to limit damage, but with limited success more often than not. And then, in City's case in particular, along First come Burnley, then Bristol City, teams you'd expect to shut up shop and hope for the best, showing that perhaps attack is the best form of defence. That attitude plus better players equals Liverpool. And what was the runaway Premier League leader's first defeat of the league season as we've just been talking about? So does that prove that parking the bus doesn't actually work? And should teams have more ambition than just attempting to prevent the inevitable. Parking the bus was started by Jose Mourinho referring to Sam Allardyce. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So yeah. this would have been when he was at Chelsea for the first time. Yeah. Uh, Sam Allardyce went with Bolton yeah. and um, he uh, attempted to 
as we said, stave off the inevitable uh, by having as many people behind the ball as possible. And Jose Mourinho described it as parking the bus, which has its own elements of irony, bearing in mind that now Jose Mourinho is the most famous proponent of parking the bus. It's this brilliant brilliant thing that happens all the time. So tiki-taka, which we all associate with Barcelona and Spain, was, was a phrase coined by Javier Clemente to insult that type of football. So and, there, there and, is this, and, and Pep is insulted by it. Yeah, and hates the, it. but everyone's you know you say Spain's wonderful tiki taka type thing. Um, I'll I'll not mention the journalist I was doing an impression of there. But the um, <laughs> it's interesting how these phrases have, do have a habit of coming back to bite people who who come up with them or being misunderstood in in retrospect. The Jose is not the well. First of all, we should probably say that it's not like Sam Allardyce invented defensive football. And in Italy, I guess they just call parking the bus Catanaccio and they'd point out that it, it's won them quite a lot of trophies. It's been going past. for 100 years and yeah. it's very successful. So, so parking the bus is basically having no intent to attack. It's basically for the whole game we just keep you out and play for nil-nil. As a former player change. This is what I'm is, saying. Is that something that you ever encounter? No, but there's normally you'd say well yes we might have two banks of four or you play a back five and you mm. defend with eight outfield players behind the ball, but you always have the option of getting back up the field because surely I've never played for a coach or been in a system where we have no intention of trying to get back up the field and scoring a goal. Defending like that is is built to get back up the pitch. It might only happen three or four times during the course Mm. of the game, but that is as much part of the plan, breaking up the field three or four times in a game to try and score as defending really well. So we're saying there's just basic coaches just say, we just blanket defence. We kick the ball into the opposition let's, half and just stay in our positions and wait for them to come back. At let's, us. let's use some examples um, to try and inform our conversation based around Manchester City because mm-hmm. they are the team uh, that has probably had to deal with this more often than not this season. So there are teams who will go to the Etihad, for example, and do what you are saying, Chinch, and have no genuine desire to do anything apart from defend yes. but there are those who will use defensive structure to attempt to then counter-attack well, Leicester. and be Leicester progressive the perfect, Leicester, strong defensive Leicester did team that brilliantly when, they won, when yeah. they won the league but in terms of the way of playing City so far this season it has been there have been three, three levels the level of doing nothing and for example there was a yeah, which, great deal of which, attention which team would you say have done well, nothing well, in that it, regard on the, uh, just after Christmas um, Rafa Benitez was mm. accused of just doing nothing they showed absolutely no attacking intent mm. when they won the ball back should they win the ball back any well, well, between the goal line and 30 yards from their own, their own goal it would go forward and there would be no chance who was playing up front for them it was Hosolu so if Dwight Gale plays you maybe think well maybe, maybe there's that chance, chance. But so he, he that, didn't that's, even play that's one he okay. did come on but that's, okay. that's one idea and actually he nearly got an equaliser at the end, which will be which will be part yeah. of Rafa Benitez's uh, defence to that. And we'll come to that in a second. Then there are some who played against City with a back six almost. So you got four, and then the wingers drop yeah, yeah. to make it a back six. Which I remember England under Fabio Capello doing very successfully against Spain and winning one nil at Wembley. So there's there's a way of structurally organising yourself like that. But Wolves, for example, um, in the EFL Cup, Southampton when it was genuinely it was 10 men behind the ball but they were structurally set up so that they could break mm-hmm. so that they had they had one or sometimes two quick players up front who would attempt to mount a counter-attack each time and then there's another level which is Bristol City where they step on where they step on and they genuinely try and exploit what Manchester City's weaknesses are in attempting to break them down yes. so those three levels so we'll go back to the level one which is Rafa Benitez so I would say that the answer to the question Oh, we should also throw in Jose Mourinho for Manchester United, but that's probably a little bit too politically charged. Well, Mourinho, I would say, was in in that first derby of the season, was somewhere between... 
he wasn't Marino wasn't just saying we, we want to escape with a draw Mar- I, I refuse Chinch will know more, more than I do but I refuse to believe that any manager has ever has ever gone into a game thinking if this finishes 0-0 that's all I want I think every single team however they set up to face City or Liverpool or Arsenal or whoever Spurs Chelsea and United are maybe a bit different I think they are all thinking the, the plan is keep a clean sheet nick one that is yeah, always yeah, the absolutely. plan. I don't yeah. think there is. There is. I don't. There is such a thing. As I suppose the only exception to that would be in a two-legged tie, where they're they're thinking perhaps a nil-nil draw, and there there are different differing opinions on the value of a nil-nil yeah. draw um, in the first leg. So we'll we'll put that to one yeah, side. Let's leave that think, aside. Think yeah. of a one-off match. I think in a in a league game, I I refuse to believe that any manager ever sets out to just say right, let's have ninety minutes where no one does anything. That's ideal. I think that the the plan is, and Benitez is a good example of this. Benitez's plan was a natural extension of what most teams have done against City this season. So what most teams have done is said, right, let's keep it tight, let's let's sit back, let's not commit huge numbers of num- numbers of players forward, let's try and block the spaces, cut off the God, I'm going to say it, the passing lanes. <laughs> yes, <sighs> we will have to say passing lanes when we're talking cut about Pep Guardiola. Unfortunately, close the half spaces. Yes, half spaces. The which are yeah. Not not allow them to overload on one side and then, oh, and then yeah. do a big diag oh, exactly. to the opposite flank. just make a point the reason I'm being dismissive of these terms is that they they are new terms for things that have always existed so well Chinch, Chinch was doing them in the mid 1990s yeah. with great success you've uh, been wonderful I didn't in know I was doing them though did I no, you're just trying to hit it out yeah. of play it just well, happened yeah. to go Chinch the right way trademarked the big diag <laughs> <laughs> hang on a minute you're saying it as if it diag. didn't work brilliantly that's what Chinch tells us off in the bedroom ask David White <laughs> I made them look world beaters he's, with got, my cross he's got a passing. t-shirt with the big diag, the big on diag. It, and then a finger pointing up to his chin it's in the loft anyway can I just ask the question about is this is this a is it just an English thing or do we see Italian football you watch a lot of Italian football stuff. Well, do you see this we're, type of thing? We're in getting ahead of ourselves. We need, right. we need to go back to the so, Rafa so defence of it, and the, then we'll then we'll spread it wide. Okay. The Benitez thing was the it's like a diagonal be, pass. Be, yeah, like a big diagonal. I'll be much quicker. The Benitez thing was the natural extension of what lots of other teams have done, where they've tried to keep it as tight as possible. What Benitez basically said was, let's keep it really, really, really tight. We don't need to even bother trying to go forward in the hope that in the last 20, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, if City haven't taken their chances, that we might be able to to nick one and ideally win one nil, or if they have taken one chance, we can get. A draw. What was the, the the criticism for that though from from Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher? Was that was that their misunderstanding, or was that genuinely them thinking this is a new nadir of playing defence? No, I think it's I think it's the way that we all talk about. I don't need to do with, with Carragher and Neville. It's the way we all talk about defensive performances. We we forget that we we don't seem to put a value on the idea that it's okay to try and win a game one nil. It, but trying to win a game one nil is different to trying to win a game nil nil, <laughs> and. I, I don't think knowing Benitez I've not spoken to him about it or anything like that but knowing Benitez a little bit I, I would be amazed if he'd gone into it thinking I, I don't want to try and win this game I just want to escape with a point and to be fair to him I, I think what Carragher and Neville said about it not being good for the fans it not being good for the spectacle it, it not being good for the league they, yeah. I think that those are all valid points but in fairness to Benitez they, they were what one Dwight Dale chance away from getting a draw so it, it kind of worked in that, in that sense that what Newcastle were trying to do was say we can't beat them by going toe-to-toe with them. How do we beat them? We have to restrict, deprive them of all oxygen. And, that's, you know, and so beat them in the final 15 And beat minutes. them in the final when did, 15 When minutes. did City score? Because I was going to say, if it was nil-nil, because his, yeah. his argument might be to say, right, we start with Hossalu, we defend, we defend, we defend, really well, really disciplined. 75 minutes, stick on Dwight Gale, 
that's my me indicating we're going to try and pinch this. Or had City had already scored, hadn't they? So Half maybe he has yeah. no no choice but, but to stick. A, would he have done it at nil nil? Taken chances yeah. to further extend their lead, which perhaps they should have done. Yes. And so again, it plays into that argument that Rafa Benitez was successful in what he was trying to engineer for the yeah. last 15, 20 minutes. And so being conscious of our con- of our contextual biases as well, we have to remember that that was before the Palace game where City came within a missed penalty yeah. of losing the unbeaten yes record. I should have mentioned Crystal Palace in that and Palace that who played, on, played on the front foot against them yeah. still still reactive as Liverpool were Liverpool were still reactive to City they still allowed City to kind of define the shape of the game but it was before the Palace game went, which I think it's probably fair to say City was starting to feel a bit tired City played Newcastle when City was steamrolling everybody and it did look like the only way to stop them was to say right we, we, we can't even engage at all we have to just absorb everything and hope we get away with it. What Klopp said after the Liverpool game is is right, that you, if you're sitting on the edge of your box, you're hoping you're winning the lottery. But ultimately, coaches like Benitez, and he's not the only one, are probably deciding that you have to at least buy a ticket. Yes, well, we'll get to, we'll get to Liverpool uh, a little bit later, but let's talk about that, that ultra-defensive attitude which Chinch asked Steve whether it happens elsewhere. We, we should probably ask the question about Italy to start with. Would they set up in that similar sort of way? Well, I think the, the approach to being defensive in Italy is different. It's, it's not that Catanaccio thing anymore. Uh, a lad called Mark Lawrence actually asked Rory and I a question on Twitter, which was to start the sort of the, the kernel of this idea to talk about parking the bus. And he said, it, is parking the bus against top sides, is that a European thing or is it a uniquely British thing? How does it compare to the, the, the football that we might see elsewhere on the continent and it it got me thinking about the approach in Italy which rather than park the bus the lesser teams sort of seem to abandon lots of much smaller vehicles in strategic (laughs) places all over the pitch like 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 a child's playmat they're parking the smart cars are they all over the pitch it's not too it's not sort of two defensive lines and hope that you might get the opportunity to Mm. break out it strikes me that they try and frustrate the better teams further up the field mm. they don't sit back and say right we're going to let you play all the way to the edge of our penalty area or, or you can have the ball up to the final third and then we might try and get it off you there's a sense that the disruption the attempts to, to, to disrupt the rhythm of a, of a Juventus or a, or a Napoli starts further up the pitch so you stop it at source rather than letting yeah. it develop further yeah, down the pitch they don't, yeah, yeah. don't just let them have the ball with impunity all the way up to a certain point they'll try and snatch it off them and that gives them the opportunity to, to break forward in search of that that goal against the run of play from a more advantageous yeah. position rather than trying to do it where you've got 70 yards to play into that if you can maybe snatch it on halfway or just inside the Juventus half if you just catch them dawdling or whatever that gives you the opportunity a better opportunity to get the goal so this I, I, I know I know in Spain some of the Spanish it always makes me laugh when Sid Lowe posts a picture of the Real Oviedo team bus parked outside the Bernabeu with his park the bus gag. So it's, it's clearly a thing in Spain as well, but I don't think parking the bus is a thing in Italy. And I, and I certainly don't, it doesn't register with me from watching German football as well. If there's any German teams that try to do it, they're really bad at it. Yeah. Because <laughs> German teams, I mean, German teams basically can't defend anymore. So. Well, well, the other, the other aspects to this, which and it is something that we've talked about on, on this podcast before, is that something that is unique to the Premier League is that there are six really strong teams so you have to think at the start of a season what's your tactic going to be to try and snatch something off 
one of you know one of six teams whereas elsewhere in Europe you might only need to set up to be ultra defensive once or twice a season yeah, so, it, there, yeah. so therefore and also it depends where you are in terms of the season as well if you're desperate for points you might want to play a bit more that way if you're in mid-table yeah. fairly comfortable yeah. you can say well today you know what it's a shot to nothing we can, we can take a chance today if we get beat it's not the end of the world because we're not in the relegation zone so that's maybe again changes a manager's thinking depending on their league position and how things are going for but I, yeah, that's a really good point and I wonder if the, if the converse is true that if you're that maybe this is something we notice more at this stage of the season in England because come April when Swansea and West Brom and Newcastle and Huddersfield and all the others yeah. are desperate for points they might have to change their approach against the big six they might have to say we've got Man United at home but we're going to have to go for it they might maybe not against City but against some of the others certainly as the certain members of the bid sits have sort of treaded tr- tr- trod water or trodden, dro- trodden trod- water trodded trodated trodated water trodated trod- water yeah, yeah. maybe you've, you've, you've seen that there'd be less fear in the way that teams play them so Liverpool and Arsenal particularly in, in their bad moments in recent seasons teams haven't been nearly as sort of cagey against them they've said right we can go yeah, to Anfield and but, win but desperation is a, is a good motivator there's, there's a couple well. of other things I think we need to mention about, about the foreigners one is that the part, parking the bus in Spain I think the the Great, the, the kind of the moment that they would associate most with that was Mourinho's Inter against Barcelona, and, that, and not a lower league, and not La Liga side against yeah, Barcelona. Or it Real was, it was a. I think what Steve says about there only being two or three teams in each in Germany, Italy, and Spain that you have to do that against. That's really important. It's the it's the, the frequency with which we're seeing teams do it in England that's a problem. Um, so in Spain, it does exist. I don't think many Spanish teams would necessarily go out and be ultra defensive against. Well, against Barcelona and Real, they probably would be, but against anybody else, I'm not sure they would be. In Germany, I don't think it particularly exists. In Italy, I think the difference as well is that there isn't the same stigma against defensive football as there is in England. I think this is that's really important, that we see defensive football as being somehow unmanly and cowardly. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. The yeah. Italians, yeah. because of the, the legacy of Catanaccio, don't. They, they see football as a tactical exercise and you deploy the tactics that you need to win. So it's not just that they don't... There's not as much emphasis on pace, so there's not as much reason to sit deep. But also the idea that a team would set up to frustrate its opponent isn't something that's worthy of comment. Yeah. Because uh, uh, that, of course you would. Why yeah. wouldn't you? We'll come on to the strategic element of, of this in a moment. But first, uh, just quick, if, if you took away the fact that the teams were playing for points, would any Premier League coach play that way or would they all play on the front foot and say do you know what if it really doesn't matter we're going to get at you we're going to take it to you and, and try and take you on toe to toe what they play would they or would they play that way and say still our best chance of winning the game is to play ultra defensive football or would they be a bit more expansive I think if it was purely and simply to win I think a lot of coaches would and there wasn't a lead position or relegation mm. or whatever right now I think a lot of coaches would probably still look at the, the talent gap and say and do the same thing this is how we've got to do it I think it's the sensible it so it's the squad that you have what you're capable of achieving yeah. and the position you're in in terms of, of the league and what you're looking to maybe survive or, or push on up the, it would change how you maybe approach that so match. when Mourinho said it about Allardyce and he accused him of Victorian football that's fine but and I'm not a massive fan of Sam Allardyce as we have already established partly because I think he looks like he should have a moustache and doesn't and I think that is well, disingenuous he, he flirted with it for many years of his life <laughs> the so. yeah. the but the, ultimately, Allardyce will have gone to Chelsea with Bolton and thought, right, how do we win this game? And the answer will have been set pieces. That's how, that's how a team of Bolton's comparative talent can beat a team like Chelsea. So he's, I don't know, that was the years of Yuri Jorkev and JJ Kocha. They were taking, oh, taking, they were, they were taking <laughs> the corner. The, but that's are, we, are we right to criticise teams? Is, is it, is well, it, I, it with well, Rafa, is, is it right? Do you believe it's right to say your approach was absolutely disgraceful? I do not. I think in the individual, and I thought about this at the time, 
in the individual cases, I think there is no reason to criticise. Mm. I think the problem is as a broader sweep. So when you have 14 teams doing it, potentially six, six games every weekend where one team is doing it, then you have a stylistic yeah. problem across yeah. the league. Yeah. But in each and if individual you're a league case, that talks about exciting football, yes. they get very frustrated with that happening more often. And and the reason that Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville would have got frustrated is because it was a Christmas fixture. It was on Sky. It was the league leaders. They were hoping for better. But uh, you mentioned about. Um, Jose Mourinho going with Inter Milan to Barcelona. We need to reflect that sometimes, because the question was posed at the beginning, does parking the bus ever work? Sometimes, yes, it does work. Does it need extraordinary circumstances like that semi-final in the Champions League between Inter Milan and Barcelona? Does it need strategic genius of what, you know, we put Rafa Benitez in that category, we put Jose Mourinho in that category. Does it need extraordinary circumstances of a player being sent off or a, uh, an incorrect refereeing decision to make it work or can it genuinely as it exists as a strategy can parking the bus and having very little attacking intent work as a strategy yes and that's why they do it but you and still need you still need a combination of things because yeah. if you're playing against Barcelona or playing against Man City you've got to hope Aguero misses that chance yeah. or Messi doesn't take that chance. Surely, so you're kind of thinking, well, we can do this really well for, for so long in a game, but there's going to be the odd occasion where we're banking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we can we can deal with all this. We can control that, but there's always that touch of brilliance that maybe we're taking a bit of a risk on. But you are accepting that, that you don't have agency in the game. Basically, yeah. that's, the, that's the, the bet that they are all making. So Liverpool, to come onto that other side of it, Liverpool can go and attack Man City to an extent they still have, I think they have 36% possession mm. because Liverpool have Firmino Salah and Mane they have the attacking ability to, to exploit City's weaknesses most teams don't have that in that Barcelona Inter game which was the defensive masterclass my two favourite defensive masterclasses of all time are Chelsea in the new Camp conceding two goals <laughs> and relying on Messi to miss a penalty yeah. although to be fair it was at the stage of Messi's career when he was going to miss the penalty um, and, Chel- and the Inter Milan one in Barcelona where they lost 1-0 and Bojan had a, missed a sitter in the, 90, the 93rd minute that would have knocked them out. Well, they're, they're, those are the intangibles we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's and what I mean. Then, yeah. then we dress them up as being a success, so, but they're only success because of you, they have given up, as you say, their agency and they have to rely on other people making mistakes. I think Klopp is, what Klopp said is right, that you are, if, you are, if you are going to park the bus in inverted commas, I, as I've, I think we've made clear, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with it. I think it makes tactical sense. I think we are too harsh on managers who do it in England in individual cases while simultaneously thinking that there is a problem with the, with lots of people doing it all at the same time. Um, but you are relying on winning the lottery. But the the one thing that Klopp didn't mention is that every week someone wins the lottery. <laughs> and Pretty much. And, and once a season it could be a Premier League team against Manchester City. It could be you. It could yeah. be you. And the thing that Liverpool did, if you know that Manchester City play in a certain way because they are going to play in a certain way, you are able to strategize against their weaknesses. They have spaces. They are they they defend very high, but they particularly have spaces over the back of their fullbacks. So Bristol City did that. They played seventy-yard diags. Yes, but Bristol City play them. that way anyway, which well, that, is a big help. They're not suddenly a defensive team that then saying, right against Man City, we're no, now going to press. They, they the, do that week in and week out. That's almost moot because the yeah. point is, is that they did that against Manchester City and showed that it was 
um, successful to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Liverpool, as I said at the beginning, you add better players. Liverpool are able to exploit the weaknesses that Manchester City had. And also, Liverpool are, are, are wildly, as they are in the fashion of their manager, they're wildly emotional. Mm. And they scored those three goals in 10 minutes because they were overwhelming City. They swarmed mm. upon them because they took advantage of the emotional edge that they had. They're, they're at Anfield. Uh, they just scored a second goal. Everything was going in their favour. That, that is their, their kind of their raison d'etre is to be overwhelmingly emotional and sometimes it doesn't work but sometimes in those situations it does I, I wanted to use this line the other day and I, and I didn't so I'm going to give it to everybody else um, to quote Jimi Hendrix incorrectly it was all about manic expression and searching their souls There's, there, there were this whirlwind that, that, that took, took advantage of that moment in that game exploiting Manchester City's weaknesses trying to play out from the back John Stone's weak on the ball uh, Nicholas Otamendi but playing a, a loose pass and Edison being a progressive goalkeeper who was out of position to allow Salah to score. So these are the moments that, and everything was absolutely perfect at that moment mm -hmm. for Liverpool, but it was perfect because they knew how to exploit the weaknesses that Manchester City had. What did Jimmy Cranky say? <laughs> just that's what you said. It. Yeah, Jimmy Cranky. Jimmy Cranky said, yeah. just, that's a great line. Say it again. Manic well, expression and searching their souls. Because really? Because you, you were at Anfield. Were you close to tears during that 10 minute spell? Uh, no, but I was close to tears on the in what the 87th minute when I realised that it was actually physically too cold for me to type. <laughs> oh, I thought it was the onions in the hot dogs. No, got to you, the, anyway. The, the crucial thing here, that we're all the, the the grand theme, is that parking the bus only works if you're suited to doing it. So what, what Chinch says you've about the right, you've got to have the right players exactly. to be able to do it. Liverpool can't park the bus because their central defence is Dejan Lovren and Joel Matip, and their goalkeeper is either Loris Karius or Seaman Mignolet. There is no point trying to park the bus. It that, is, work. that is a bus with many broken windows. As Chinch says, City, Bristol City did to Man City what they do every week, and it worked because it's what they do every week. Because the, the players that they have, that's the way they play. But they, they could have changed. They could have decided, but what's the point? This is a two-legged affair. If we keep it nil-nil, we might... Lead Johnson's no fool. He wouldn't change. <laughs> but it wouldn't work because the players aren't used to it and you can't, especially yeah. with, the, with the championship schedule, you can't teach them to play ultra-defensive football well in three days. Maybe the, part, the point at which it becomes a problem and we talked about how fans want to, with the West Brom example, fans need to have something to look forward to when they go into a football match and that's when ultra-defensive football, really cautious football is an issue. But maybe the point when it becomes a problem for bigger teams, perhaps big teams who wear red and are managed by Portuguese people, is of when... Of which there are many. Of which there are one. <laughs> and I'm not, again, I'm not saying I have a problem with it, but maybe the reason that it's, it's looked upon askance is because it's not a way of playing that befits the club or even actually befits the team. Maybe there is a... There is a sense that if you don't Anthony Martial, you mean, you and mean Marcus, the players, the constitution yeah. players. Of the if team. you don't Martial and Rashford and Matter and for a bit Mkhitaryan and what have you, maybe you shouldn't be playing. You shouldn't feel the need to play defensive football. Liverpool could go toe to toe with City to an extent because of the players they've got. Whereas Man United, who who went and shut Liverpool down at Anfield, great result, got a point, could have won it, got beaten by City because they they tried to play a way that doesn't actually necessarily 100% fit mm. the players they've got. Well, a couple of things you've just mentioned that 
that nil-nil draw at Anfield between Liverpool and United. That was something on this issue. As well as having the right players, surely there's a time and a place for parking the bus. What's, what was so strange about that United performance yeah. at Anfield was that they went into that game on the back of a six-match winning run. They'd won nine of the previous ten. And Liverpool had only won one of their previous seven. So surely you would look at that game and think, well, Liverpool are vulnerable. If, if, we're going to, if we've got a chance to win at Anfield, this is it. And that, that performance sort of knocked the stuffing out of United mm-hmm. in terms of the start to the season that they made. The other thing with parking the bus is that I'm uncomfortable with the with those associated with big clubs taking a sneering viewpoint yeah. of those smaller teams that come and park the bus and 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 they get they almost they want to have their cake and eat it they want they want to be able to see their team go out sign all the best players spend tens of millions of pounds investing in their squad and then expect Stoke to turn up and play in a fashion which will enable Manchester yeah. United Man- Manchester City Liverpool Chelsea etc to win four or five nil comfortably that's not the way of the world you've got to play in the manner that that is best suits your club in terms of getting a result. However, another word that Rory used a moment ago, the, the cautious word, what troubles me is that the way that those smaller teams play against the big six is creeping into their approach against each other. They've Absolutely, become yeah. so used to setting up defensively yeah. against teams with, with strong players that they are now... Ta- and we've started to see an awful lot of games in the Premier League this season where rather than, right, we're not playing one of the, the, the big six today, so this is our opportunity to get out and win the game, go and play with freedom, go and play expansively. And they're not that... Both sides are being a little bit too cautious and, and you end up with, with games that are a little bit dull. And that's, that's because partly, I, I agree, it's just they're used to it from the big six, but it's also because the Premier League, currently the amount of money involved in it, rewards of the avoidance of defeat rather than winning but the point in the middle that Steve made about the Premier, the bid six wanting to, basically wanting to take all the best players and all the resources away from the other 14 and then being offended that they, they don't immediately roll over when they turn up at their grounds may well be the best point I've ever heard made on this podcast well in that it case it was it was excellent in that case excellent. it's a really good point if, if we had a fanfare and confetti we would be playing one and throwing the other at you. So In fact, it's such a good point. I'm going to steal it and not credit Steve. <laughs> you do that more often than just then. Um, mm. So, Chinch, you were going to say yeah, something? Just, I, I think Steve is absolutely... Better than that, not, not better than that. I'll just back it up. If you were to ask a Stoke fan or ask a Palace fan, you're playing against Man United away or then you're playing against Bournemouth at home. What Steve is saying, if that's starting to creep into the Bournemouth at home performances, yeah. that's when people will maybe start to criticise the rest wire of the league. A wire thesis. The wire the- thesis. Yes, yes let's call it that. If we weren't thesis. Yes. If we weren't wearing headsets, by the way, I'd have already dropped the mic. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. And you would have planted a large kiss on Chinch's forehead. <laughs> you saw it when, when, when Liverpool smashed Bournemouth earlier in the season. They won 4-0, didn't they? Uh, the, uh, the Vitality. Uh, Dean Court. The Dean Court Vitality. The Dean Court Vitality. The Dean Vitality Why are you looking Court? at me as if I'll have the answer to that question? Like yes, they did. They won 4-0. 4-0 or 4-1. You would have followed. Lots, mm. of, lots of sort of Liverpool-related pundits were praising Bournemouth for how they played, for wanting to go toe-to-toe with Liverpool. They got beaten 4-0. Whatever, yeah. however they played was the wrong decision. Which you played the game in the right way yeah. and got battered. As Sean Dyche said, Here we uh, go. When, 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 when I went to see Sean a few weeks ago, he remembers listening to driving somewhere, and this actually says quite a lot about Sean Dyche. He was driving with Alec Chamberlain, who was a goalkeeper at Watford, uh, and they were listening to a team that was about to get relegated, and, and the coach saying that he, you know, if, if they go down, he wanted to make sure they went down the right way. And Sean, Sean Dyche screamed at the radio and at Alec Chamberlain, don't go down the right way, stay up the wrong way. And that is, that's absolutely true. You don't, if you're losing 4-0, 
then you, you shouldn't have played that way. It's, it, there's no honour in getting smashed 4-0 by a better team than you. Blackpool were the classic example in the Premier League. They had a chance of saving themselves and they played this expansive style. It got them to a point where they could save themselves. All they needed to do under Ian Holloway was adapt slightly, be a little bit more defensive, pick up a couple of points more and they would have stayed up. And they went down playing the right way. And where are they now? Well, so they, they could have done it differently if they just would thought... You have played. They're, they're still on the filed coast, I think. No, they're still where they are geographically. <laughs> would you have wanted more money in the Oyston's pocket, Chinch? Let's not go saying? down yes. that road. This is very dangerous. Very dangerous yes. indeed. But I want to finish our conversation just by... Because we haven't yet tapped into it, so I want to at least tick the box. That when you were having your pre-match meetings, when yeah. you were a player, Chinch, was there ever a conversation where the... the the, the focus of the conversation was only on the defence. It wasn't about how you might counterbalance the other team's strengths or exploiting their weaknesses. It was, it even, was, if, yeah. even if you were expected to get thumped. Yes. It, it was always on, let's defend well, but there was always, there was always an outlet. But. There's always an outlet. There's always an Andy Booth to go screaming down the other end using his pace. Never happened. <laughs> we had Paolo Di Canio, we had Benny Carboni. So we were built to defend well, but we all didn't defend well. Not everybody was back and we just kick it into the opposition half and just kind of play out time. We always had, or we always played with the thought of we can get back up the pit. If you go to Old Trafford against that Beckham team with all the great players in it, you know you're going to be under pressure. You're going to have to defend well. But we thought our best way of, of giving them a few problems as well, something to think about, is having something going the other way. I can't ever remember any coach ever saying, this is just about keeping the opposition out. Don't worry about creating any chances or trying to score. Never. In that case, we should probably pay, pay due respect to those managers that we have said, park the bus because they're not necessarily thinking about parking the bus. They are thinking about doing the very best that they can for their team. And that might be considered by others slightly incorrect. And also, unfairly, you, you, don't, you don't have to win a game over 90 minutes. You win it over. You can win it in 10 minutes, but don't be out of the game after 80 yeah. minutes. That is the plan. That's what I was saying about the, the line-up for Newcastle, who played up front for them. If Hosselu started, it was nil-nil with 10 minutes to go. Maybe he'd have thrown Dwight Gale on, or maybe he wouldn't have said, right, nil-nil, that's what we're playing for. But we've got a chance of winning this, or we're chasing the game. We put Dwight Gale on. He gives us the opportunity to get up the pitch. So, and as ever, the, the, the argument is often more nuanced than yes, it is yes, easy to yes. say, uh, criticise, right on the Monday morning. But mm. even even with Mourinho and the parking the bus and he is the one who gets the most abuse for it and I'm not necessarily going to sit around and defend Jose Mourinho for everything there's, <laughs> defend there's, um, there's, Scottish, nice. there's, there's Scottish people for that uh, the, but th th there's that passage in Diego Torres' book about Mourinho's principles of football which is, which is the sort of basic he's denied it but it's, it's come from senior Real Madrid players so it's, it's true where he talks about kind of the team with the ball has, has the fear, so don't have the ball. And that games are defined by other teams' mistakes, so don't make mistakes. And if you have the ball, you make more mistakes. And that's been used as this sort of proof that he is this ultimate kind of reactive manager. And maybe he is, that's maybe fair. But he's doing it all in the pursuit of victory. He's not doing it so he can draw games nil-nil. He doesn't want to have the ball because he thinks the team with the ball makes more mistakes. So he wants to have the ball less so that his team makes fewer mistakes and is more likely to win the game. You might not agree with that approach, and it might not be great to watch, but it's not, it's not set out so that he in, in pursuit of anything other than winning. His, his, that's his idea is, I don't want to have the ball, because I think that increases the my chances of winning. classic less is more. Yeah, whereas Guardiola's thought is, the more I have the ball, the more likely I am to win. It's just yeah. two ways of seeing, seeing the same thing. And it's results business. Nobody wants to draw every game because they won't be in a job for very long. Well, and then this then gets us onto perhaps a subject for another podcast. Well, let's tease ahead with this one which because is, we're wrapping this one up right now. Which is what is good football? I've got a friend Neil Atkinson from the Anfield Rap who you may, you may have encountered at some point uh, who says that he hates it when people tell him 
when, when the weather forecaster says, oh, it's a shame it's going to rain tomorrow, what if, what if you like rain? Yeah, what if the garden is in need of watering? Yeah, well, if you if you like rain, if you're a duck. What happens if you're a duck? Well, there's water everywhere for ducks. If you think yeah. about it, you don't Try need it to rain. Not everywhere. They, don't, they don't only swim in puddles. But ultimately, what if you what if you really <laughs> do they enjoy swim in puddles? What if you swim? enjoy long ball football? What if you like watching it? Uh, Jonathan ah. wrote, wrote a piece, I think, in December, saying that is is Manchester City's football beautiful? Is it? Who, who, who decides that? Yes, yeah. who decides? And he he happened to say that I don't find it beautiful. So yes, we'll we'll have a conversation about the beautiful game and what's beautiful. And also as a player, sometimes if you are if you you're playing against a team that you know is better than you man for man having the ability to defend really well for 75 minutes and pinch a 1-0 win gives you more satisfaction as a yeah. team than winning 4-0 and playing really well because that's actually tactically very different than what you would probably want to do normally you want to be on the ball creating chances playing good football but can you actually switch it play a different way and still win I remember punching the air in delight coming off after a 1-0 away win at Ipswich. God, we were excited. <laughs> because, God, Ipswich were good. Was that George Burley's Ipswich? <laughs> no. Uh, well, yes, it might yeah, have they, been, they, yes. were, they were better than your Sheffield Wednesday. No, yes. they weren't. Well, Everton I'm talking about. That's when I dislocated my finger. Anyway. Well, just... you mentioned yeah. Sheffield Wednesday, which yeah. is handy, because fittingly, uh, we now move on to oh, Sheffield yes. Wednesday. Yes, because yes. it's time for this, ladies and gentlemen. Never mind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is when Andy tells us a tale from his playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details details removed but before that I did promise that I would reveal the chicken salad so oh. whilst you have a think I'm oh, going to go and get there's the chicken gonna salad there's going to be some food introduced to the table yeah well we're about so, to uh, been here for hours haven't oh, we bloody hell the guinea bowl the do you need a drum roll you're particularly proud of this aren't you oh my god oh wow so just for, for, the li for your listening pleasure, the dinner bowl that Hugh has revealed is the salad containing equivalent of a sex swing. It's a ceramic <laughs> hammock. It is. It's a salad hammock. It's a salad hammock, yes. And it, uh, it will swing left and right just for no reason whatsoever. Um, and it has... So we've got salad leaves. We've got um, roast chicken. We've got chorizo. You should uh, have mentioned the chorizo. We might have been a bit more excited yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> some sweet peppers, some low cherry tomatoes, um, all that. And I'll, I've got some, some uh, vinaigrette to whack on as well. So, um, Chinch, you now ready? I am ready indeed, yes. Right, OK. There's yes. nothing like a chicken salad to inspire the memory. <laughs> It's just a couple of little stories about things that happen in training. And at the time, they seem fairly insignificant. But you tell them now, and I'm not sure coaches would let players get away with this type of thing. The first one, Paolo Di Canio, who was a character. <laughs> a great player, the, but the a character. Look, we should say, the look on Andy's face there he was, suggested, suggested yeah. there might have been some speech marks either side. Yes, but we, we used to, with under, I think this was under Danny Wilson, actually, and we used to do kind of small-sided games where, you know, very tight areas, and Paolo was great at all that. But he wasn't a big fan of people tackling him. He just wanted to get the ball, beat five people and score, and people pat him on the back. <laughs> and, and, and go home for a, and go for home. a cigar. And Des Walker didn't train, well, he virtually didn't train, or I can't remember him training two consecutive days. He just basically used to turn up at training, go in the treatment room, complain, go home, <laughs> and then be our best player at the weekend. And for some reason, Des had decided to train, and he always seemed to kind of focus in on one person who was going to get it, who was going to get the Walker <laughs> treatment. For some reason, that day, the one day Des trained was right, Paolo. And he kind of stuck to him like glue and was chipping away at his ankles and stuff and trying to put the... Eventually, after about 20 minutes, Paolo just downed tools and just said, I'm off. And he just basically walked off the training session. <laughs> and we're all thinking, 
right, the coach, can be, Danny Wilson's going to say something here. He won't be getting it. See ya! <laughs> and just pointless trying to get him, once he'd made his mind up about what he was going to do, Pat, it was pointless trying to say, come on, I'm on the show, come on now, you're part of the team. They just let him walk, and he just, he just walked off. Just walked off. I've never seen a player walk away from a training session. I can't remember anybody else, but probably Paolo would be the one, but it was only because someone was actually defending against him, and did he Des, really did didn't Des like Walker it. Did think that he had succeeded? Yes, no, he was, Des was, Des went in as well, said, I've done my job now. He just wanted to come out and annoy someone, worked his magic and then went in. And there was another training session with Vim Yonk, who Vim is one of the best, actually one of the best ball players, certainly I play with. If you watched him play for Holland, brilliant technician on the ball. He was so, he was light years ahead. Coming to Sheffield Wednesday, we're thinking, what are you doing here? Because clearly you're far too good for us. But what Vim liked to do was kind of show how much better than everybody else he was. Oh, the, the, the Glenn Hoddle effect. Yes, but not like by doing it against the opposition. He even did it to his own players. And I always remember when he used to, playing in central midfield, he used to pick the ball up and then he'd kind of feed it out to the right back or the left back. And I always used to watch, if I rolled the ball into his feet and he turned, he was playing the ball out to Ian Nolan, who was our right back. And I guarantee you, every time he used to pass the ball, he'd put a little bit too much on it. He didn't need to, but he'd just gun it at him and it'd probably bobble over his foot and go out for an opposition throw in. And Vim would kind of just raise his eyebrows to say... Told you. <laughs> and um, every time the ball used to come from right to left, coming towards me, I always used to think, right, if he's passing me this, but he's going to put a little bit, just because he can yeah. and because he's saying, and if you can control it, he maybe go, oh, okay. But he didn't have to do it, so why? Why embarrass your own teammates? Was that in games? That was in training. In and, training. Uh, well, in games, I bet he probably wouldn't be far off again because he probably, the ball rolls off somebody's, on somebody's lace, he's got, he'd probably just say, well, you know, you shouldn't really be in the same team as me. But maybe that was, was it a Dutch thing or was it a Vim thing? Might be a Vim Young. But he was... Uh, He's in charge of the Cruyff yeah, schools now. He hardly said anything to anybody, but he had that way. Did he talk to Gerald Seabon? He had to, I think, yeah, because yeah. they travelled into training together. But Jill De Builder, or Bob De Builder, <laughs> as I call him. Uh, yes, and Vim and Gerald Sibon, who, again, I have to think of a Sibon story because he nearly broke my leg with a shot once, and I can maybe tell that later. But, yeah, why would you pass a ball with too much weight on it to embarrass one of your teammates? That's not on, is it? And more importantly, where is Ian Nolan now? Does he? Has, has he got Still his own chasing to pick the ball up? <laughs> yes. Has he got his own podcast? Do you think? Well, I hope he's he's got some sort of platform to be able let's, to defend himself. Let's, let's let's finish this podcast with an announcement. Let's do. Do you know where Ian Nolan is? Please get in touch with stories of Ian Nolan's current whereabouts. Ian, <laughs> Ian Nolan's podcast would be Nolan's first touch masterclass. Yeah. <laughs> Did you know that Stelios Giannakopoulos? He's played for Bolton. Bald fella, agree? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Feynman. No. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Where? If I'm in there Athens. is life after. In Athens. Yeah. Tremendous. Putting out a lot of fires there, aren't they? <laughs> uh, at setpiece menu or setpiece menu at gmail.com. If you have any news about Ian Nolan, we are desperate. Please do subscribe, share, rate, and review in the meantime as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Andy, Rory, and Steve, and to you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. We've got some new friends that we need to say hello to. Who are our new friends? Well, we, we had a, a rare Saturday off together, myself and Hugh. And we oh, went yes, our new to enjoy some ninth tier football. We went to see West Didsbury and Chilton that's, play that's one team. Winsford. It was Winsford, wasn't it? In the North West Counties Premier Division. And it was a brilliant afternoon. It was a cracker. Where's that pitch? Um, it's Brook Brookburn Road, Road, which is in Chiltonville, which is that 
a very nice bit Chalton between Village, which uh, sounds uh, like a 19th century novel but actually is a place in Chalton between West Didsbury and Chalton is the graveyard it's the other side of the graveyard right it is. It is considerably nicer than you're trying to make it sound. It's just a it graveyard. What kind of game? What kind of game? Did oh, you see? oh, is that what, what a game it was? Wilsford, who are tenth in the no, in the yeah, North yeah, West yeah. Counties Premier League, and uh, West Dubin and Chalton West, as we'll call them uh, from now on, because you know, if you know, that's what you call them. Uh, they are what just hovering above the relegation places. They were. They were, but the the victory. The victory has, that has they secured went one nil down, two one up, two two. And oh. then a 3-2 winner with about... Yeah, could, you, could you have played in either of those teams? Well, we did for about 12 seconds and then I would have been tired. We okay. got. We, they very graciously <laughs> declared Set Piece Menu to be the official podcast of West Didsbury and Chilton Football Club because Hugh and I had popped down That's for true. Saturday and they asked whether we knew any good left-backs. Well, I can find one for you. Yeah, well, that's a, uh, we yeah. said we'd ask you and see if you knew anyone. <laughs> Ian Nolan is apparently just working on his left <laughs> how, how many people were at the game? Uh, 450. Wow, really? It was a big crowd for that level. 450? Yeah. It, was, yeah, it was a good crowd. And, and half of that 450 were children in pushchairs and half of the parents of those children worked for the BBC because every time we turned to look at people arriving, <laughs> they all worked for the BBC. So clearly, well, there's nobody else in West Didsbury or Chalton. That's why <laughs> we're flooding, flooding, flooding the market a little bit. And a lot of dogs. Hector would be more than welcome, Rory, if you fancy joining us next time. And I, that, that sounds that sounds ideal. He will bark at all the other dogs and probably the players. But that's uh, that just adds. But a the bit one thing he can't do is let that dog go on the pitch and do his business. There's, there's nothing business. worse than a fecal <laughs> sliding tackle. <laughs> now, I'm telling you now.